Good morning once again. It's good to see you all. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18. And this morning, let's start at verse 1 and read down through verse 14. <clears throat> at that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it will be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come. But woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. But the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. It's a lot there, obviously. But in verses 1 through 4, Jesus uses, the, um, uses a small child uh, to teach his adult disciples about the quality that will make them great in the kingdom of God. That was their question. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So Jesus takes literally a toddler, as we saw last week, and uh, uses that child to illustrate the greatest in the kingdom will be one who becomes like a child, who humbles themselves to be a servant of all, as we talked about last time. Then starting in verse 5, and don't miss this, because if you don't get this, you're going to be confused, all right? Starting in verse 5, the Lord kind of broadens his comments to include not just young physical children, but also any disciple who humbles themselves and becomes like a little child, verses 3 and 4 point to. So verses 5 to 14 really uh, are Jesus going back and forth using sometimes the illustration of a literal child. Other times he's using a small child to represent a young disciple or a new convert of his. And sometimes he's talking about both. You say, well, how do I know what is what? I, you know what? You ask the Holy Spirit to show you. I'll, I'll try to help you. I'm not even sure on all of it. But, you know, when I read this section, I keep in mind uh, little children, young disciples, and I try to fit them both into the passage unless it's clear he's talking about one or the other. But I want you to see in verse 5 how the Lord Jesus Christ identifies himself with his people. He said, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Now the word receives there is a Greek word that is often used of those 
who welcomed honored guests into their home and treated them with kindness, meeting their needs. And of course, the main point Jesus is making here is that anyone who welcomes a Christian into their home and treats that person with honor and kindness is actually treating Jesus that way, and God is going to reward them for their kindness. Remember what the Lord said earlier in Matthew 10? He's talking to his disciples now and said, who, He who receives you receives me. He who receives me receives him who sent me. And then he went on to say this, and whoever gives one of these little ones, now he's talking about his disciples, young converts, whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, surely I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. It's very important to understand that Jesus identifies with his people. We see that clearly in Acts chapter 9 when Saul who was on a rampage, pulling Christians out of their houses. He thought they were a cult, uh, dragging them into court and so on. At one point, he's on his way to Damascus to drag Christians out of their homes up there to stand trial down in Jerusalem. And of course, he meets Jesus on the road as a bright light. Jesus knocks him to the ground. And what did Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? Me. Jesus Christ identifies himself with his people. Now, this comes through very clearly later on in Matthew's Gospel. Turn to chapter 25. I think it's important that we really understand this. Because how we treat each other, we're actually treating Jesus that way. If we just get that one idea in our minds, it would cut down a lot of the gossip, the backbiting, the backstabbing, the putting down, and so on that goes on in the body of Christ. If every time I did that to a brother or sister, and I realize I'm actually doing that to Jesus, I'd probably keep my mouth shut a lot more. I know I would, and I think it's something that we all would benefit from. But we pick it up in Matthew 25, verse 31. It says, when the Son of Man, Jesus is speaking here, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly I say to you, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. You know, when it comes to those who are the least of Jesus' brethren, um, again, I would imagine... We're talking about maybe a young convert to Christ, brand new. You know, oftentimes we don't give that person much uh, notice. You know, uh, some people find them sometimes a little bit of a bother because they're wanting to hang around with the older Christians, you know, and, and, uh, and you want to talk about things that are a little deeper. And here you got this person asking constantly, well, what does that mean? All right. Uh, what does the Bible mean when it says this? Get away from me, kid. A lot, of, a lot of Christians find that annoying. I find it a blessing. 
I really love it when, even, especially the young kids come up and ask me questions about God's Word. I find it a privilege and a blessing to be able to share with them what God is saying, to build into them. But it's not that way for every Christian. I mean, sometimes we all tend to look at these people and go, well, you know, brand new in the Lord, just, you know, kind of just be seen and not heard for a while. Just don't, you know, bother me with all the questions. And, and we don't think they're, much, they're worthy of much of our time. But Jesus is really warning us against that kind of thinking. He is really saying that no matter how young a person is in him, no matter how young they are when they get saved, look, they still represent Jesus. They still have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. And they have the potential to be used by God in phenomenal ways, even though right now you may not see it that way. Didn't Paul say that God takes the foolish, the weak, the base, the nobodies to do his best work through? That no flesh of glory in his presence? Children, you know, young believers, they're weak in their faith. And yet, those are the very ones oftentimes that God uses. I can't tell you how many great revivals in the history of the world have been started by God used teenagers to start them. The Welsh revival is one that comes to mind. But this idea that we don't think much of those who are young in the Lord, maybe even children who are saved, that's a problem. In fact, it's a problem that one author illustrated this way when he said, and I quote, he said, a number of years ago, a Scottish pastor stood before his congregation and resigned, saying, in the past two years, I have seen only one conversion in this congregation, we Bobby Moffat, with such little fruit, I can no longer serve in this ministry. And he walked away from the pulpit, a broken man. Little did he know that we, Bobby Moffat, grew up to be Dr. Robert Moffat, the missionary that opened the entire continent of Africa to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The author goes on, if you are teaching Sunday school right now, it's very possible that you may have a wee Bobby Moffat in your class. If you work with kids, realize that Jesus places a high value on children. And he says, if you receive them, you receive him. So I see the Lord identifying so much with his people here. And he says, look, if you treat any of my disciples, especially those that are, young, that are the youngest the most uh, vulnerable still, haven't really gotten strong in their faith yet, but you treat them with kindness, you bring them under your wings, you, you kind of build into them, you're going to be rewarded for that. I'm, I'm not going to forget that. Next he goes on to warn, though, of the consequences to those who do anything to stumble one of those who belong to him. And verse 6 would read again, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, guys, that is a solemn warning that carries with it a very serious penalty for those who violate it. The term causes to sin translates the verb scandalise, which is a word we get a word scandalized from, but it's a word that means to offend or cause to fall, to offend or cause to fall. This millstone that Jesus mentions was referred to as it was called an upper millstone. What is a millstone? <laughs> uh, think of a tire on Fred Flintstone's car, okay? Giant tire. Uh, actually, they were very large, round, flat stones, like a wheel, upwards of 400 pounds. And uh, usually with a hole in it through which a, um, a beam was placed 
that was then harnessed to a donkey. And what they would do is they would stand it on its end, okay, as a wheel, and they would set it into a trough or a channel, circular trough or channel, and they would pour into the trough grain that they had harvested, and then they would, again, harness it to a donkey, and the donkey would, would push the wheel or the millstone around and around, grinding the grain into flour, which they would then use to bake with. So they, they, they understood the imagery. They, they knew what a millstone was, okay? And this was one of those upper millstones, a very large one, okay? Upwards of 400 pounds. But the idea that Jesus is saying that if you cause one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, to fall away, to sin against me, it would be better if you had a millstone tied around your neck and you were thrown into the depth of the sea. If you were Jewish, that was unimaginably horrifying because the Jewish people were not really seafaring people. They were afraid of the open sea. And the idea that, and, and, and let me just say this, the Romans did at times take a criminal out on a boat to deep water, tie a large rock around their neck and push them overboard. And for a Jewish person to imagine a millstone being hung around their neck and they being cast into deep water, that must have been horrific beyond imagination for them. And yet Jesus said that even that form of execution, as terrifying as it was, would be better, a better punishment than the punishment waiting for those who try to stumble, cause to sin, or do anything to cause a disciple, especially a young disciple of Christ, to turn from him and walk with him no more. You know, there are those people that delight in getting a Christian, and I'm thinking of young Christians, to doubt their faith, or even in tempting them to sin. Some people get a real kick out of this, and they're not all unbelievers, by the way. There are some professing Christians who find it amusing to pressure young believers, those that are really zealous for the Lord, brand new in their faith, really in love with the Lord, wanted to do everything they can to honor Him and live for Him. There are some people who call themselves Christians who target people like that, young believers, and they will try to provoke them to the, to the point where they maybe lose their temper and maybe say something they didn't want to say, or get them to laugh at an off-color joke, or even... In other situations, they will try to get them to drink some alcohol or smoke a cigarette or a joint or, or go see an R-rated movie. Because if they can get a young Christian to fall into these things, it makes them feel better about their own carnality. Because they know they're not really living with the Lord. And this young believer, their life is a, re a rebuke. Darkness doesn't like light. Even a Christian was living a dark life. And so if they can get this young believer to kind of stumble in their faith, that way they can say, well, look, I'm no, they're no better than me. They're doing the same things I do. Hey, we can all be Christians and still have some fun, go out and watch a R-rated movie or, you know, get drunk or have uh, smoke a joint. It's no big deal. I still love Jesus. And there are people out there like that. But today, guys, we're seeing in the secular realm, we're seeing many atheist teachers and professors on high school and college campuses that take great pleasure and trying to destroy the faith of their students who are Christians. Because if they can, it validates or vindicates their atheism and makes them feel intellectually superior. But you know what, guys? Sometimes this backfires. What I'm about to tell you is a true story. I know it's a true story because I know the pastor 
of the church that this young guy in the story goes to. He told the story. The story happened about 15 years ago. And the young guy in the story, his name was Billy. And Billy was just starting his sophomore year in high school. And his very first day in his science class, the teacher asked, is there anyone here who's a Christian? Well, Billy's the only one who raised his hand. And from that moment on, that teacher made it his mission to belittle, degrade, mock, make fun out of Billy and his Christianity. This went on for several weeks until finally, near the end of a class one day, the teacher decided he was going to have a showdown with Billy. He was going to prove to his class once and for all that God did not exist. And so he opens his desk drawer and takes out an egg and says to Billy, Christian, I'm going to drop this egg in the floor. But before I do, I want you to pray to your God that when I do, the egg will bounce off the floor and not break. That way, if it happens, we know that there's a God. If it doesn't, we know that God's a myth. Billy just sat there for a second. I'm sure he prayed a quick prayer. And I believe the Holy Spirit came upon him. Here's what he prayed. He said, Father, you have seen how this man has mocked you these many weeks. You have seen, Lord, that every chance he gets, he ridicules you. He mocks those who belong to you. He makes fun out of your existence. And God, now he comes with this foolish test to prove whether or not you exist. Father, I pray in Jesus' name, that when he drops that egg, it will break into a million pieces and you will strike him dead on the spot. The teacher's eyes, he just stood there in stunned silence. He looked at Billy. He looked at the egg. He looked at Billy. He looked at the egg. He gently put it back in his desk drawer, closed it, and dismissed the class. <laughs> and almost every kid in that class came up to Billy right after that and said, Where do you go to church? What youth group do you attend? Now that doesn't happen all the time, obviously. But there are times when our God will use us to shut the mouths of unbelievers who ridicule those who belong to him, and we have to be open to the Spirit's leading. Sometimes the Lord will just cause you to be silent. The time has not come. You just pray. But be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Because this world is full of those who want to offend, stumble, cause us to sin. Jesus said in verse 7, Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come. But woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Now, in the Bible... Whenever God, or even an angel, because we see this in Revelation, whenever in the Bible God pronounces a woe, or an angel of God pronounces a woe, it's always a term of judgment. It's always a term of judgment. The first woe in verse 7, woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come. That is a general judgment that's in view there. It is the coming judgment upon this whole world, this Christ-rejecting world and rebellious world. You can read about that coming judgment in Revelation chapter 6-19, right? It's a judgment that's coming upon the whole world, upon the earth dwellers, those who have rejected Christ, and so on. The Bible says that Satan is the god of this world. 1 John 5-19, the whole world lies under his control. 
And he has orchestrated this world, this world system I'm thinking of. And I'm thinking primarily of all the media, whether you're talking about Hollywood, the music industry, uh, television, uh, print, the print media. He is very powerful, isn't it? Those things are very powerful in programming the thinking of people. And guys, if you're not aware of this, all spiritual warfare starts and is primarily centralized or targeted in the brain. If the devil can get you to think the way he wants you to think, he can get you to live the way he wants you to live. That's why for all the years before we got saved, we were programmed, we were brainwashed by the devil. Once you get saved, what did Paul the Apostle say in Romans chapter 12? He said, now, don't be conformed any longer to this world's way of thinking, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, because Paul knows that spiritual warfare starts in the mind for control of your thinking. And so Satan has got his hands on everything that targets our thinking, pretty much. I'm thinking of the media primarily. Praise God for Christian TV, Christian radio, and so on. But I'm telling you, you, you know how bad it is out there. And every day the devil pumps into the brains of people, unreally beknownst to them. They know what they're looking at and listening to, but they don't understand the devil's behind it. He's pumping into their brain, trying to take over their thinking in some area, trying to get them to think that sin is not really sin, that it's not bad, that it's pleasurable, and if it feels good, how could it be wrong kind of a thing, right? And, and that's what he's doing with young people especially. He's targeting their thinking, getting them to think that sin is not really sin. Uh, a lot of it goes back to the sitcoms of the, of the 70s and up until the present day. Because the devil knows if he can get people laughing at sin, he can, he can you know, lower their defenses against it. But every day, people listen to the devil and live contrary to what God has said. This is where the woe comes in. They are storing up for themselves judgment. In the day when the Lord calls them to account and they stand before him. In Romans chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, Paul mentions this. He says, But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. Now, the good news is you don't have to be judged for your sin. You can repent and receive Christ because God delights in showing mercy. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, Peter tells us. But there is coming a day for those who refuse to repent. They are going to stand before God, the righteous judge of all the earth, Jesus Christ, and they will give an account for everything they have ever done, whether in word, thought, or deed, that is, was contrary to what God said. That was the first woe in verse 7. The second woe, he says, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. The second woe is an added judgment upon those individuals who promote the evil that Satan is behind. They promote it, they peddle it, and they profit from it. These will incur a more severe judgment than those who just participate in it. And when I think of those who are peddling and profiting off of certain sins that will bring a more strict judgment, I'm thinking of those uh, who are into the pornography industry, prostitution, drug trafficking, sex trafficking. Listen to me, especially if it involves children of any kind, child pornography, child sex trafficking. Sweet Jesus in heaven, I would not want to be in their shoes on the day of judgment. And yet even those God is, lifting, is, re is reaching his arm out to and saying, I love you. 
If you turn from all that, I will even forgive you for your sins. If you don't, you will incur a greater judgment than those who just participate in that sin. In fact, sin is so serious, Jesus goes on to say in verse 8 and 9, If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And it tells us that hell is real and hell is eternal, by the way. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Now, these verses are very, very similar to what Jesus already had gotten done saying in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember that in chapter 5, verses 29 and 30? In that context, and here he broadens it to include any sin, but in that context he's talking about adultery, the sin of adultery. But here he broadens it to include any sin. All right, He is saying all sin must be taken seriously. In fact, he is telling us sin is so serious that any inclination toward it must be dealt with radically and decisively. Now, having said that, listen to me, okay? Jesus, although he is really stating something very strongly here, is not, listen to me, is not admonishing us to literally mutilate our physical bodies. How do I know that? Because if you pluck out your right eye because it's causing you to lust, (laughs) your left eye can do enough lusting for both eyes. Okay? Same thing with cutting off a foot or a hand. Sin begins in the heart with our fallen nature. And no amount of physical outward mutilation is going to solve that problem. All sin begins in the heart. You say, well, then why did Jesus put it this way? It's not literal. He was speaking in hyperbole. He was stating something. You know, we're also jaded today, even back then. Sometimes God has got to say something that is so shocking it grabs our attention and rivets us onto what he is saying so we don't miss it. So we don't let it go in one or out the other. The Lord Jesus Christ is using a shocking illustration here not to encourage us or them to maim themselves, but to hopefully show them and us the seriousness of sin and especially, listen, the horror of hell. Jesus is saying here that there is nothing so valuable in life, nothing so important that you can't eliminate it if it's going to lead you into a life of sin that will take you farther and farther away from God and from heaven and lead you closer and closer to the hellfire, which is eternal. I don't care what you got going on. I don't care what it is, materially, sexually, whatever it might be, it's not worth going to hell for. And anything that has got that much of a hold on you, do whatever you have to do to break the hold, get rid of it, run, do whatever you have to do, because nothing on this earth is worth going to hell over. Nothing. Then he talks about the fact that sinners are going to be judged someday, but he doesn't want that. He's out looking for those who are lost to save them from the judgment that is coming. Verse 10, he said, take heed, first of all, he says in verse 10, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. Who is he talking about? Talking about little children? Talking about young disciples? Probably both, all right? For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. The Greek word for despise there is a word that literally means to look down on a person, to consider them inferior, and therefore to treat them with contempt. 
To despise one of these little ones is therefore to treat one of God's own precious, beloved children, whether they're talking about literal children or a young, impressionable disciple, is to treat them with contempt and disdain. Jesus said, For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now there are those who use this to justify guardian angels. Okay? Guardian angels. That everybody in the world, believer or unbeliever, has a guardian angel. Well, we know that believers, uh, Hebrews 1 tells us that uh, God's angels are ministering spirits sent forth to help those who are his people. We know that God does use angels in our lives a lot as believers. Does that mean we have one posted on us 24-7? I don't know if I can find, I, I can think of a verse in the scriptures that really say that, but they're available if we need them. And maybe they do uh, stay with us all the time. We don't know. I will say this to you, the Jews, the Jews in Jesus, they did believe in guardian angels. They did. And Jesus is saying, at least the Jews would have understood it this way, that look, these little ones are so important to him, he assigns to them the toughest, strongest angels. Not the ones that, oh, little kids and disciples, little, they're not that important, you know. Send them one of the grunt angels over there to watch over. No, Jesus is saying, look, if you, Jews, if you believe that only the greatest angels have access to my Father, then know this, these, these little ones have angels that are always coming into the presence of God on their behalf. Therefore, in God's eyes, they must be pretty special. They must be pretty special. Because by your own theology, he is assigning to them only the strongest and highest ranking angels to represent them. Well, then verse 11, we read, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man is a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine? and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Now, turn to Luke chapter 15, because Jesus expands on this teaching in Luke's gospel. And I, I really love the way it's stated in Luke's gospel. Luke 15, starting in verse 4. Jesus said, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. What a beautiful picture of the good shepherd going out looking for lost sheep. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be, listen, more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents that over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Now, one thing this does tell us is that the Lord Jesus Christ and God, of course, in general, God is very concerned about individuals. Sometimes we think we're just a part of this faceless humanity, and God doesn't really know me that well. God doesn't really care about what happens to me. When Jesus said, every hair in your head is numbered, that's how much God thinks about you and, 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 and how much you are important to him you are. And right here he says, look, when one sinner, the, Jesus Christ is actively looking in this world for sinners. How? Through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, when one person repents and comes to me and becomes one of my children, 
all heaven breaks loose in joy. It's a cheering. Can you imagine that? When you got saved, I don't know what you were saved out of, but when you got saved and when I got saved, the moment we knelt, if we did, and said, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need you in my life. I repent of my sins. Come in and take control. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. At that very moment, all heaven broke loose in cheers and rejoicing. That's how important you are to God. Not me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how bad a life I've lived. Okay. Some of us have lived pretty bad lives. But I don't get the impression Jesus is qualifying. He's saying, well, only the kind of bad sheep I'm looking for. Those real rotten ones. <laughs> no, he, he's out looking for sinners. Because you are important to him. And then he says something in verse 14 that we want to just stop and look at for a minute and we'll close. He said, even so, it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now, again, is he talking about a literal child or a young disciple? If he's talking about a young disciple, then he's saying that once they give their hearts to me, they are eternally secure. They will never perish. If he's talking about a child, and that's what I think. I think he's kind of come full circle. He started with the child in verses 1 to 4, uh, you know, using the child to illustrate the true greatness in the kingdom, humility, and so on. I think the child was still there, maybe on his lap or in his arms as he was teaching his disciples. Now I think he comes back to that little child. And he is talking literally now about little kids. And he is teaching us then something very important. He is saying that a child that dies before the age of accountability does not perish in hell, but goes immediately into the presence of God in heaven. Say, well, are you sure about that? I mean, do you have anything to kind of back that up? Well, I'll give you a couple of scriptures, all right? You don't have to turn to these, but in 1 Timothy 4, verse 10, remember what Paul said? He said, Jesus is the Savior of all men and women, especially those who believe. So he's saying that, look, Jesus didn't just save those that have received him. He is the Savior of all people. All people. He died for the sins of the whole world. Everyone's sins have been atoned for. 1 John 2, verse 2. And he himself, Jesus Christ, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Listen, that means that nobody goes to hell because of Adam's sin. Nobody goes to hell because they were born with sin on their soul from Adam, little children. Jesus paid for all those sins on Calvary. Now, does that mean because Jesus died for everyone's sins and everyone's sins are technically atoned for that everyone's going to heaven? That's called universalism. No, they're not. Because what keeps a person out of heaven is not that their sins haven't been paid for as they reject Jesus Christ, the payment. We read this in John's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 8 and 9. Jesus said, when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Listen of sin because they do not believe in me. Jesus is saying that, look, the only sin that, that keeps a person out of heaven is the sin of rejecting me, the one who died and paid for those sins. Your sins are technically paid for. They're atoned for. 
if you don't go to heaven, it's because you have rejected. Not because you've sinned your way into hell, you've rejected the answer for all sin. Jesus Christ, his blood. Again, Jesus' death on Calvary paid for all sin, including Adam's sin. See, the argument that a little child is too young to believe, well, yeah, but they're also too young to reject Christ. Okay? Therefore, if a baby dies, I believe they go right into heaven because Jesus paid for the sin they were born with, the sin they inherited from Adam. You say, well, yeah, but do you have anything else that would be a little more, a little stronger that would prove that? Well, here, let me just tell you the story real quick. Remember David, how he, King David, how he sinned with Bathsheba, right? And uh, she was married to somebody else. David had an affair with her. She got pregnant. And she bore a son, all right? And immediately God struck the child with a severe sickness. David begins to fast and pray for seven days. At the end of the seven days, he sees some of his servants talking in the corner, and they look like they, didn't, they had something to say, but they didn't want to say it to him. He says, is the child dead? He said, yes, king, the child is dead. Now some people say, why did God punish that child for David's sin? Folks, can, I just, can we just get our thinking right a little bit here? It's not punishment for God to take a child that's a week old off this earth into glory, into his presence where there's fullness of joy, there's no sickness, no death, no hunger, no sorrow. That's not punishment. That's glory. He was punishing David because children are a blessing from the Lord and God says, I'm not going to bless you with this child. This child's coming home with me. I'm going to take care of this child. You're not going to be blessed because of what you did, David. So David finds the child is dead. He gets up, washes himself, changes his clothes, orders a meal, sits down and eats. His, his servants are dumbfounded. Okay. They said, King, you know, you're blowing our mind here. Uh, we don't get this. He said, they said, you know, well, you know, for a week you're fasting and praying and so on and so forth, and now you know, the child is dead, and now you're eating and you're changing your clothes. and everything. What's, what's going on? David said, this, this is very important. David said, look, while the child was alive, who knew if God was going to be merciful? I, that's why I fasted, I wept, I prayed. But now that the child is dead, listen, the child cannot come back to me, but I will someday go to be with him. Was David talking about heaven? Yes. Didn't he say in Psalm 23, verse 6, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever? Not because David was such a righteous guy, but because he believed in a very merciful, gracious God who said, the soul that sins shall die, but I have allowed for a substitute. And if you believe on me, as Abraham did in Genesis 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God. It was accounted to him for righteousness. That's how we are declared righteous. Not because of what we do or don't do, but because we believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus said that little children have angels. Didn't we just read it in Matthew 10 or 18, verse 10? For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Children have angels. Now, Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that angels, guardian angels, are only assigned to believers that we know of. They are sent forth as ministering spirits to minister to the children of salvation. So if angels are only guardian angels, are we know for sure that they are assigned to believers, and these kids have angels that are assigned to them, these young ones, 
That means that they're right now in God's eyes, they are saved. If they die before the age of accountability, they go right into his presence. You say, well, what is the age of accountability? First of all, let me just say this. Any child that sins, in the eyes of God, they're considered sins of ignorance. Because they're not at the age of accountability yet where God will hold their sins against them. So at that, until that point, whatever sins they commit, they're considered sins of ignorance by God. They will not be held uh, against them until the age of accountability. Now, what is the age of accountability? Well, in the Old Testament, Numbers 14, 29 and other places tells us it was 20 years old and above. 20 years old and above. That was the age of accountability. Now, I taught on this about a year ago, a similar subject, but talking about the age of accountability, being 20 and above in Scripture. One of the guys at the church came up to me and said, man, you blew my mind. I said, what are you talking about? He said, I just watched a documentary on TV. A bunch of scientists were telling us that the human brain doesn't, something happens when, a, when a, a person turns 20 and there's chemicals that are developed that now allow this person to come to some rational thinking and decision making. Well, if you have raised teenagers, that's, you know that's true. Because until when they're teenagers, they don't make any sense. All right? They, they, they make the dumbest decisions, right? But something at the age of 20 happens. God has designed the brain. At 20, chemicals begin to kick in. And all of a sudden now, they're able to think clearly, process information properly, and make responsible decisions. Or they're capable. I'm not saying they always do it. And therefore, God says at the age of 20 begins the age of accountability. And up until that time, if you sin, I will not hold it against you. The blood of Christ will be continually put to your account. But when you hit 20, now you're old enough to know better and I'm going to hold you responsible for the decisions and the actions that you make. You say, is that still true today? Or is the age of accountability still 20 and above? Well, based on science, we just said probably. Although I don't know. I don't know if God today judges people based individually, you know, were they brought up in a Christian home? I mean, a, a, a young guy or gal who is uh, 10 years old, brought up in a Christian home with strong Christian parents, read the Word, did, taught the Word in Sunday school class, does God hold them more accountable than a, a child that grew up in a non-Christian home who never heard the Bible? Maybe. I don't know. I do know this, and we'll close. God is not up in heaven, wringing His hands, going, well, I can't wait to send people to hell. I just really get a lot of, I get a big kick out of sending people to hell. That's not our God, okay? The Bible says that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that's why Jesus Christ is active in this world through the Holy Spirit, seeking lost sheep. You don't think God cares about you? You think that whatever you're involved in makes you unreachable? where God is saying to you, I never want you in my family. You, you are living a life that is so bad, I, just, I can't even think about you coming into my family. That is absolutely untrue. Jesus Christ is looking for lost sheep. And it doesn't really matter how bad your life has been. He can forgive. He wants to forgive. Paul said where sin abounds, grace what? Much more abounded. The Greek is superabounds. There is no sin so great that God's grace can't forgive and bring into salvation into God's family. So God loves you. Yes, he has to deal with sin, guys. 
That's why Jesus came down. And those who refuse to receive Christ, they're storing up for themselves judgment and a coming day of judgment. But God doesn't want you to be judged. He loved you so much he sent his son that you would not perish in hell but have everlasting life. It's up to you. God wants you to be a member of his family. And once you give your heart to Christ, he puts his top angels on you. That's how precious you are. The devil's going to want to get you. Okay? He's going to get at you. He's going to destroy that faith. He's going to want to ridicule you out of the faith. And the Lord will surround you with his angels because he loves you. And he will work with you as you grow in your faith. But he is the good shepherd that goes out looking for lost sheep. That's our Savior. May God help us to understand that. Father, we thank you so much for your word. The truth of your word, Lord. How that, Lord, you identify with your people. You dote over your people. Lord, you are ever mindful of us. You're always thinking about us. Your word says, if I could number the thoughts you have toward me, they would be more than all the stars of the heavens. Wow, that's a lot to think about, Lord. That's how much you are constantly thinking about us. We thank you, Lord, that you love us so much. And we ask you, Lord, to give us grace to live for you in these last days, not to be afraid to stand up and say we belong to Jesus. I'm not ashamed to admit that. When sinners mock us and atheists try to destroy our faith, give us strength, Lord, that we can stand there in total confidence that not only are you real, but we belong to you. And someday you're going to take us off this earth at the rapture Give us a glorified body. And from that moment on, we will never, ever be separated from you for eternity. We thank you, Lord, for the non-Christian. This world is as good as it gets. For the Christian, this world is as bad as it's ever going to be. Thank you, Lord. There is coming a day of great glory. For these tribulations, which are but for a moment, will pass as they have been working for us a far more eternal weight of glory. So give us grace not to focus on the things that are seen or temporal, but to focus on those things which are unseen that are eternal. For we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.